But if we can be more compassionate to those we don't know, and if we can bring the best out of those we do know, I think we're in the heading in the right direction for a world that really needs it. I'm Tommy Thompson, and you're listening to Space for Life, a podcast with honest conversations designed to help cultivate the space we need for a more fulfilling and abundant life. Despite our culture being wired for excess and overload, our souls desperately need the opposite. Thanks for joining us today as we seek to take one more step into a spacious life. Welcome back, everyone, to Space for Life. It's so good to be back with everybody in this podcast, so thanks for joining in. Uh, I can say over the time that I've been doing this podcast, it's just been an amazing experience, I think, for, for me to have the kind of conversations that I've been able to have with with people who are really incredible, unique, special uh people. It's, it's, it's the best of kind of what I get to do. So uh, hopefully you get to benefit from it also. And I, and I say that because today is like, you know, at, at, a, at a pinnacle of that sense of privilege that I have to have a conversation today with a good friend that we haven't really known each other all that long or through all that many deep uh times together, but there's just a unique sense of connectedness that that I feel with Alex Peavy, who is my guest today for the podcast. And uh, I think as you hear his story and his wisdom and his experiences, you're going to clearly feel the same way and the same sense of uh, connectedness that, uh, that, that I do with him. So, it's really a privilege to have uh, Alex with uh, with me today and with us today. I'll give you just uh, like a really skeleton background of at least what I know of his story, and then I'll let him fill in the gaps. Uh, I know Alex from his years and years of being uh, a counselor at collegiate school, uh, and he can tell the story from before then. And he actually worked as partners with my brother, who was also a counselor at Collegiate and kind of succeeded Mike, you know, after Mike retired. Uh, And so got to know him through that and through also his experiences with my sons as coach for them. Um, And then through going to a a similar uh, church together and then through some of our commonalities of having experiences with uh, with cancer in our different ways. So uh, Alex's story, I think, is going to be great, and I'm not going to take a lot more time. I'm going to let him kind of share a little bit of his story, and then, then we'll have a chance to dive into just some specific thoughts and questions. So uh, Alex, thank you so much for being a part of this and for um, what you've meant to so many, many people um, over all of your years. So welcome. 
Well, thank you. You that is as kind of an introduction as I've heard, and and the feeling is a hundred percent mutual in regards to how grateful I am to to be sitting across from you right now. As we have many times before, as you said, this friendship goes back a while, but it goes to the depths because I think of our shared experiences during the time that we have known each other, and. I, uh, you know, I think also of your brother, Mike, who uh, you're kind to say we were partners. I would call him my mentor because I, I, as I arrived at Collegiate to the, be the boys varsity basketball coach, was working administratively, um, but came to your brother, Mike, and said, hey, I've, I've got these kids that keep coming to me and asking me questions. And I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm listening. He said, good, keep doing that. <laughs> and he said, and, and you've got a psychology background. How about you think about counseling? And I was like, I've always wanted, I either wanted to coach or counsel. I wanted to do one or the other. And, and your uh, brother, Mike, so graciously guided me into uh, counseling uh, grad school, as well as guiding me into the position at collegiate that I uh, felt such an honor to have, first of all, to follow him, to also join Andrea Miller, but also to be entrusted with the the stories and the hardships of whatever student or faculty or parent might walk into that office and to be able to treat them each with uh, the love and care that they needed in that moment of, of whatever was going on in their life. So that, that was a real uh, privilege to be able to work uh, with and then after your brother because it set the tone for how I would approach what I did in my own counseling as well. Well, you and Mike are also such incredibly kindred spirits mm. and, and and the way and kind of the, uh, the heart and sensitivity that you guys come to counseling with I think is, is unique. And so I, I see such a similarity in, in heart and passion and compassion that that both of you guys uh, have. So uh, it's neat to also be able to honor Mike even as mm-hmm. we're as we're talking about this because he's a he's such a gifted person mm-hmm. and you are and the impact I think of what you guys have done over over decades uh would boggle most people's <laughs> mind in terms of the depth and the difficulty of the mm. issues, you know, mm. you counsel through and mm. the, the life situations you walked with people mm. through. So I have an appreciation knowing Mike and then knowing you also for mm. for what a gift you've been to so many people. Well, you're kind again to say that. And, and, and what I'm fully aware of is that each person who did step foot into a my office during that time, they, they ended up being such a gift to me. Their hardship is the priority of the moment, but the lessons I learned from every single person who walked into that office uh, was as important as anything I taught them. And so that's where I think uh, those years of counseling and, and, and a number of times the counseling involved people losing a parent or a loved one to cancer. And and so I found myself in those situations prior to finding myself in a cancer situation 
of my own. But when I looked back across all of the experiences from counseling, what I learned from the various students and families and what they went through certainly guided us through what we've been through as a family. And that's where, again, as a counselor, I think it's important that we sit, we listen, as Mike said from the beginning, uh, and, and we help guide people to their answers. But we also keep our ears open to the wisdom that they are imparting upon us because who knew and who knows when you might need it one day down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Well, go back as far as you want, Mm -hmm. but I I think, uh, you know, a lot of people listening will know you already, but, Mm -hmm. you know, also a lot of people listening won't know you Mm -hmm. and your story. So I'd love for you to just tell however you want to tell it, you know, what, what brought you to this point, going back as far or not as you want? <laughs> well, it, it's, it all t- twists and ties together, so I'll have to go back a little far, but it's relevant because it's, it's the path I've chosen in life consistently. I, I grew up on college campuses because my dad was a college administrator, and uh, so I was always around college life and college athletics in particular, and a lot of my mentors and the the people I looked up to as a child were the coaches at the school schools that my dad worked at, uh, whether it be Coach Holland at uh, UVA and also that staff had uh, Dave Odom, who was a, it still is a family friend and uh, just different people. And then we go to uh, Alabama and Gene Stallings was the head football coach there at the time. And to be able to, to sit in the locker room as a think 12 year old of a national championship team and just soak up a pregame speech from Gene Stallings uh, was as much of a master's degree and understanding human interaction as any psychology class I took. And so the, the, the way I grew up was constantly around sports and constantly around men and women coaches who were leading others to be great. And so I was this strange kid that I specifically remember at age 10 drawing plays from the games on TV. I'd watch the ACC games and try to draw the play. I wanted to coach and I oh, played, amazing. but I wanted to coach because the people that were around us were the coaches. And, and as I said, I, my admiration for their impact on others beyond basketball just gave me this hunger for it. So that's where kind of the sports side of me all began and and uh i ended up going to the university of virginia and didn't play any sports there but i was recruiting assistant for the football team and then did stats for the basketball team and from there went on to walford college where i coached for four years under um mike young who's now the head coach at virginia tech um and so i got from age actually my first year of coaching at walford i was younger than three of the seniors on the team there <laughs> and so it was thrown right into division one basketball um playing you know five or six acc big 10 sec teams every year to uh help fund the entire department and athletic department and so you got some amazing experiences and then uh i had this opportunity to come to collegiate and it was presented to me in a way late in my fourth year at Wofford uh, of, of coaching there. And I had gotten so tired of recruiting in college basketball in the sense that, and I love college basketball, but you spend more time on the road looking for the next player 
than you do coaching the players you have. And it's the way it's set up just by the number of the hours NCAA allows you to work with your own players. So you end up recruiting more than coaching. And the more high school gyms I went to, the more I wanted to be the coach in there coaching, not the one sitting in the stands watching. So ended up at collegiate and, and as we talked about, not only ended up coaching there, but also, uh, counseling. And that really, um, again, I, I, I think I got to collegiate at age 26 and I learned as much from everybody around me as again, as I hope that I may have taught people along the way. Um, but within that, while at collegiate, uh, I also, they, they, they wanted me, my first few years at collegiate, uh, basketball, we, we jumped out really quick, really good. And we were, next thing you know, we were top 10 in the state. I think it was six straight years we were rolling with it. And, and, and the big thing that was happening was beating teams we shouldn't and not panicking in situations where maybe someone else might. And they've, were asking me, what was I teaching the basketball team? And I talked about this form of stress management that's called mindfulness. And for the basketball team, I wasn't telling them we're doing mindfulness. I just said, this is sports psychology because that's all it is. It's awareness of the moment, how you evaluate it and what you're going to do about it. And so I started using mindfulness with the team. And then they said, hey, can you take whatever you're doing with that team and turn it into a two-week class? for every freshman to take at collegiate. And so we create, I created this two week stress management class that was all based on mindfulness-based stress reduction that John Kabat-Zinn started at UMass Medical Center for med students and doctors and patients and, um, and continued with it from there. So it was really a great, uh, again, privilege and honor to be at a school where I could coach, I could counsel, and then I could teach a life skill because as a counselor, to, to teach every freshman some skills based in the concept of mindfulness allows them to handle situations that they may not have otherwise. And it gave us context for if they did need to come to me later, they know who I was because I taught them this class. And it doesn't mean everybody used mindfulness all the time, but that at least they knew who the counselor was and we could have a starting point there. And and what I started finding was people were coming because they were like, hey, remember that freshman mindfulness class? I've got my senior speech now and I want I need to right. take some breaths before this. And so I always joke that that class is like a book you put up on the shelf and you figure out when you want to take it off and use it and when you don't. And that's it's been fun to see over the years, whether it's a job interview 10 years later or a athletic experience at the highest level, hearing from students uh, who experience those mindfulness classes and continue to apply those skills to wherever they are now. Well, that's so amazing. And I, I, I resonate with that from the perspective of, of doing executive and life coaching mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, that gives you such an opportunity to speak deeply into someone's life, but you also have the other side where you're reaching people one at a time. It's a a very slow process. And and so even this podcast, as well as the blog I've written and and the book, they're all ways of saying, okay, I want to share broadly what I believe and what matters to me. And that actually then uh, accelerates and accentuates mm-hmm. the times that that I'm coaching because they already get where I'm coming from right. and what matters to me. And it makes it that much easier in a sense. And it has that additional sense of being able to reach 
a, a much broader mm-hmm. number of people than you can one by one. It's like they each have their place. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's it. First of all, it's establishing a foundational understanding when you have, like you said, the blog, the podcast, the book, and people can speak from any one of or all of those places. Or if you're a student of mine in a class, and so it's you. The, the semantics are at least agreed upon to start with at least where our conversation is and so it does allow for us to then broaden the topic it's almost like the icebreaker is the knowledge that comes from the things you're providing people or the class that i taught so then the conversation starts they they feel like they already know us or we already know them because of the connectivity through the teachings and and i do uh you know there's a momentum that grows from that that is so palpable as well yeah well i want to i want to come back to the mindfulness, Mm. both to have you explain it Mm -hmm. a little bit more and even to ask a few questions Mm -hmm. about it, but kind of in the interest of keeping the Mm -hmm. story going, love for you to keep on and then we'll come back yeah to that. where the, so that was the collegiate years and 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 uh, and those years continue I stay in touch with them I I speak to the teams when I can and and uh, while I don't work there I, I'm uh, Sarah and I all always consider it home and so while at collegiate I also started this mindful leadership class for seniors that was uh, based on emotional intelligence uh, neuroscience and the kind of the foundational intentions of mindfulness as a for performance, essentially whatever your performance may be, and so that senior class was a semester long class, and I also reached out to Patagonia as a business model and heard back from the son in law of Yvonne Chenard, who's the founder of Patagonia, who helped me piece together a class to talk about the different ways that businesses can approach things in the context of consciousness awareness and what are all your decisions based on money are they also based on uh what kind of cotton are you putting into that shirt is it uh fair trade and all that stuff so it became a class about mindfulness but that uh is how do you step out into the not necessarily go teach mindfulness but bring the skills into what you're doing and i bring this up because when i ended up getting cancer I was teaching this senior class, uh, I think in t- it was the spring of 2017. I was 39 at the time. And during that time, I had mainly extreme fatigue was the primary thing, which when you coach multiple sports, you teach multiple classes and you counsel extreme fatigue just felt like what it was. <laughs> it felt pretty it normal. It felt like work and why we have the summer off. And, and, and so the, uh, fa- but then it got to the point where I remember in February, uh, I, and this was, yeah, of 17, I, I would get to about two o'clock in the afternoon and I would have to lock my door, pull the blinds and honestly take a 30 minute nap because I could not stay awake. I, it felt like I had been sedated and this was, it went from being tired to like, I can't stay awake. And so I was plugging through to get to the end of the day and, um, did go finally to uh, get blood work done. And and through a series of things, we eventually figured out that uh, I was having kidney failure of both kidneys. Blood test revealed this because they didn't know what was going on. They thought an infection might be there. Being 39 with zero cancer history in my family at all, their first thought was not cancer. It was what's wrong with your kidneys because your creatinine level is so high. 
and uh, your PSA is high, but it, that, that can be high for different reasons. But creatinine reveals the kidney functioning and my kidneys were failing at a rate of 10% per day. And we got to Friday and it, it hit such a level. The doctor had said to me, Hey, you got, and this was at a specialist clinic. He said, you got to go home, get your wife, pack some bags. You got to go to the ER right now. I'm not sure you're going to make it to Monday. And that was the statement we got on St. Patrick's day of, uh, it was a Friday morning of 2017 was, went from monitoring this thing, not knowing why I was tired to all of a sudden, we don't know if you're going to make it through the weekend that like that pivot really changed <laughs> everything. <laughs> everything. Yeah. yeah. Cause then we still don't know why at that point, we still don't know why. And actually this person's guess, uh, was a pretty catastrophic guess, which it, you don't know, but they, you know, they were guessing if we got through the weekend, we might last a few months beyond that. Cause they thought it was some other version of a can different cancer that they just didn't know. And, and ultimately we, that weekend stayed at the ER Sunday night. Uh, the kidneys were still failing, got up to like 60% failure. So they decided to do what's called a nephrostomy tube where you basically put it into your kidney and drain the kidney out the back. Uh, it's not pleasant, but it's a solution. And they did that Monday night the, and, the, and the kidneys still continued to decline. So they had to do the other kidney on Tuesday. And then we did like this 13 point biopsy on Wednesday. So it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, after going in on Friday of surgeries and, uh, by the, and we still didn't know what it was, but luckily by Wednesday, the kidney failure had finally stopped. And so we now could focus on what's doing this. And that's where we eventually, a week, we went home and came back a week later and, um, got the diagnosis of stage four prostate cancer with metastasis to my, uh, hips, to almost all my vertebrae. It looks like buckshot. If you look at it in an x-ray, it's in every one of the vertebrae. And then, uh, my sacrum, especially where the, you know, the spine and the back connect at the bottom. So it w and then also in the lymph nodes and those were obstructing the kidneys. And once we got into chemo and the lymph nodes decreased in size, we were, uh, able to remove the nephrostomy tubes. But I had those for nine months. Um, people didn't know I was coaching and teaching and had these yeah. tubes coming out of my back, but it, w I wasn't going to stop and, uh, doing what I love. And, uh, the, uh, yeah, so that was the first nine months of it. And, and I don't know how many surgeries have been since, but we were now four years into it. They're based on statistics, especially when it goes to your bone with stage four prostate cancer, there's, there's a 3% chance of making it five years and it'll be five years this, uh, this March if we get there and that's our plan. And so, mm. uh, we, we, we got the primary cancer held at bay, not curable, but treatable. And then this past year, uh, a new cancer arose, which is neuroendocrine carcinoma, which is growing inside the old cancer. So it hides in scans, but was revealed because I've had a bunch of surgeries related to my kidneys and there's a stent that helps the left kidney. And just because they had to replace a stent in my left kidney, they found this other cancer. Otherwise it wouldn't have been found. A lot of times for this particular cancer, people find it in autopsies to be honest, because it doesn't show up a lot in biomarkers and you think you're dealing with the other original cancer, but it's this new thing. So 
that's where we are now. I did a, uh, another five months of chemo to, to fight that off. And we weren't sure if that was going to work or not. And it did. And, uh, it's, it's gotten us to this year. And, and I had the same surgery to remove some of it this past, um, spring, right before the summer started. And so this time around, they're able to take some of it, but we, we can't do the chemo a second time. And so we're kind of in this place where the blessing is that we are pushing the edges of medicine in regards to the stage four prostate diagnosis, but also this neuroendocrine diagnosis. We, um, the combination of the two make it a tricky thing to just treat. There's right. prostate cancer and there's neuroendocrine cancer, the combination of the two. And mine's what's called poorly differentiated, which means they, they're twisted together so you can't separate the two. Um, make it a tough uh, uh, mouse to catch. Well, I really I appreciate so much you're sharing kind of the, the, the details mm. of it because... I remember in in our journey, and and I can visually from the outside see the same thing with you that uh, my daughter Perrin, she always seemed so well. Mm-hmm. She seemed healthy. She seemed mm-hmm. uh, happy. And most often, people from the outside thought that everything was okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people for a lot of those years, thought that she was in remission mm-hmm. during right. all that time. And her prognosis in terms of time was almost identical to what what mm-hmm. you described. Uh, so people from the outside didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we were living um, in many ways a horror story. Mm-hmm. And what you describe it as people hear it because that's a horror story mm-hmm. and yet that's that's been your last bunch of years and I don't know I just appreciate your transparency mm-hmm. in telling a really difficult story of mm-hmm. where you've been and where you are well um, I you're kind of say it and it, it it's surreal to sit here talking about because uh I learned a lot from Bear Perrin. She was amazing. Yeah. Her writing, her approach, and everything you all did uh, is an example to so many people. And so I agree. It's, I, you know, I think of Perrin's smiling face and you would have no idea what's going on on the inside physically, you know, with the, the body. And that's where it, it's... It, uh, I think that's where the facts are what the facts are, but the choice exists in what you do about them. And that's where we try to take, you know, always think of if every action has an opposite and equal reaction, if this stuff is so negative and so, you know, cancer itself is such a, a punch, you know, we got young kids and all that. It, there's so many layers to it. If it's so negative, what is the opposite and equal reaction that that reveals the positive, that reveals the blessing, that reveals, uh, 
I won't, I don't say the, the goodness of cancer, but the goodness of life that should exist without cancer and, and a cancer diagnosis allows forces you to reevaluate how you're living, what you're doing and what your priorities are going to be and what I would hope for and what I know parents certainly in her writings did the same. And just like your book is don't wait for a diagnosis to change how you live. If mm. you need to change how you live and if not living with some level of presence, some level of love being at the root of every decision, don't wait for something uh, heavy to change you. And what I, what I can say for our, us is I, it changed us, but it really it pushed us more in the direction that our hearts wanted to be in. Yeah. And, and so while I feel fortunate, like for me, I practiced mindfulness long before this happened. And I was a counselor before this happened. And, and I, you know, coach sports in a motivational way, hopefully before this happened. And all of those elements came into helping through the process of it and tried to not fake how I feel because you'll know when I don't feel well and you'll know when I'm in pain, but you're exactly right. I walk around during the day and the, the, the number of people, they just have no idea the calamity going on inside of my body, but that's okay. But it's just this weird, almost visual contradiction right? that, that is, uh, unintentionally people often think I'm completely fine or totally in remission. And I wish that so much. Um, and it's hard to turn around and tell them that that's not the case because I don't want to burst bubbles, but it's just living with this intentionality rooted in love and surrounding ourselves with the people that function from that same place could make anybody, meaning body, physical body, right. look good and feel good. And that's where the choice exists. That's, that's so hard, I think, for so many people to fathom. Mm. You know, they, they uh, understand, and, and, I, and I can understand how it would seem like what you've been through and what so many people go through, that you can't, you can't meet it with that mm. opposite, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the opposite can't triumph. Right. Of, over it. And, right. um, you know, I just, uh, gosh, I, I feel like you so much feel the same way. It's, it's like the, the storm has made me realize how very precious mm. life is mm -hmm. and how somehow it's appreciated mm -hmm. in depths I could never imagine when nothing was wrong. Yes. On the outside. Yes. And so so how can it how can something so bad mm -hmm. turn to something as you mm -hmm. say so good? Mm -hmm. yeah. Create such depth and gratitude. Mm -hmm. I mean it's we we know all the the darkness and the light uh, analogies and metaphors but I can say that you know it 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 becomes a practice and it doesn't mean there aren't bad days. And this is where, you know, one thing I've talked a lot about is, is choosing joy. Choosing joy doesn't mean there aren't days we wake up crying and go to bed crying. Yeah, absolutely. And choosing joy doesn't mean that uh, there aren't some days I wake up 
throwing up and I can't stop, right? Like there, there's that other side that the right. world doesn't see. But it doesn't mean when I'm done with the hard part, I'm not going to turn around and not choose joy. I'm exhausted and I may be grouchy on certain days and I'm not always my best self. And that's where my family, the, 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 the ones who live with me most directly with Sarah and the kids, like the, the word we use all the time for all of us, because we're all tired and this is all hard is grace. Like the, the yes. grace must prevail. And if grace prevails, that means when you are having a bad moment, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, or all three, which usually happens, you're allowed to, you're allowed to, to cry. You're allowed to be angry in the moment you feel anger. The, the main thing we don't want to do is to act from that sadness. We don't want to act from that madness. So for me, it's a practice of sitting with the discomfort of the sadness or the pain or the fill in the blank of the negative thing, sitting with it so that I can be without it. And if, ah, I, love if I do not sit with it, how can I ever sit with myself? Because it's, it's, it's part of me. It's part of what's happening. And so the way that we liberate ourselves from whatever negative emotion or negative experience is occurring is not around it. It's through it. It's with it. It's part of it. It's, and that's where, yes, we're fighting cancer, but inside my own mind, it, it hasn't always been a fight because it's like, it, it, it's, it, it's how we use this momentum to continue forward because at this moment, my cancer is not going anywhere. So right now, it's how do we take the negative of the day to, again, have that reverberating effect to where I might be crying in the morning but laughing in the evening? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing that, that just jumps out to me is is when we talk the way you're talking and mm-hmm. I, I like 1,000% agree with it, there's nothing just optimistic or Pollyanna mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was horrible, horrible journey mm-hmm. that we went through. And mm-hmm. what you're describing is a horrible journey. And I'm, I'm sure, I mean, day after day, mm-hmm. horrible. You don't know how you're going to make it. Mm-hmm. And kind of yet, even though there's, there's this always this, even though mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as you as you look at it mm-hmm. in the face, and I, I just appreciate it, but it's not we're not we're not glorifying this Mm-mm. horrible experience that we went through that you're going through, mm-hmm. and so um, I hope nobody would hear mm. that. No, I think it's the it, for me it's. It's the question, regardless of who, what your situation is, what any individual situation is, it's a very simple question. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. So it's not, not glorifying any of it, as you said. It's here's the bad side of it. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And the answer is choose life, choose joy, choose presence, choose love, choose the people that we're surrounded by. And, and have no regrets and and not in the sense that I'm going to go off and do a bunch of, I'm going to go bungee jumping I'm going to do all these things I'm diving fully into the presence of every human interaction I have right now because that's fully living for me it might be something different for yeah. somebody else but so it's 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 the hard stuff presents the opportunity to choose the other and the other stuff when you climb out of that hard stuff 
become so grand, so amazing. If it's lunch with a friend, if it's it's being able to get out and see live music, if that's your joy like mine, go go out on the water. Every single thing you do becomes so amazing because you didn't know you'd ever get to do it again. Yeah, and what just jumps out to me is that if if you can say that mm. through everything that you've been through, and if you still maintain mm-hmm. that ability to choose, mm-hmm. even very imperfectly mm-hmm. and inconsistently, but if you do, then when I think of the hardships that so many people are going through, whether it's other family issues or divorce or whatever, you know, it it hopefully gives the sense of power that, mm-hmm. wow, if, if you are able to do mm-hmm. this, as horrible as your situation is in so many ways, then we can all do this, mm-hmm. you know. We can all choose joy. Mm-hmm. We can all mm-hmm. choose life and presence mm-hmm. and love. And, you know, the other stuff just pales once you've done that. Mm. Yeah, and, it, and and the things we've listed right there of what we can choose becomes an experience. It becomes a felt experience when you choose love, when you choose presence. All of a sudden, just sitting on the back porch with a best friend becomes as good as any grand trip you could plan anywhere it's just Absolutely. sitting across from people you love doing the things you love and and hopefully making some sort of positive impact on the people around you as you do it 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 it, it, it that's the opportunity put in front of us and to me that's that's living it doesn't mean believe me there are days where i'm like man i'm not having a positive impact on anybody i'm just grouchy i'm tired i'm this and right. that but the grace comes in, which allows me to make sure tomorrow is the better day. Tomorrow's the better day. And the next moment's the next is the next better moment. And so it's just giving yourself the grace to be imperfect in this. And that's yeah. why I keep calling it a practice, because yes. you're not gonna be done with this. I mean, it you talk we had a we have a horrible situation that's unfolding in regards to the medical challenges and everything that dominoes out from it as you all did and and it's here you are and and the joy and love that pours out of you and so it's like how did you all do it because we're doing it how do you keep doing it yeah and there were new challenges you know Mm -hmm. for us uh it's it's uh it's just awesome i i I gotta say you know we we postponed a couple of times Mm -hmm on this, uh, you know, getting together. And I've so deeply looked forward <laughs> to this. Uh, honestly, not so much for the podcast, mm-hmm. but for the chance that we haven't had for a long time of getting together and sharing life and mm-hmm. sharing hardship and mm-hmm. sharing lessons. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, even even as hard as, in some ways, this conversation is, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a sense that this is the very best of life. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this is, this is the real gift, you know, it just is. being able to sit and have this kind of conversation. So it, it is a true gift and I'm, I'm grateful for you creating the opportunity of it. Well, I want to ask, uh, we're just going to kind of keep on and 
Um, for those listening, this might get split into a couple of episodes or not. We'll figure that out once we go. But I'd love for you to just share a little bit about how your faith has mm-hmm. impacted this journey. Because I know yeah. it's a profound thing for you, but I'd love to just yeah. hear it in your own words. Oh, it's huge. It's it's And faith means so many things. And obviously, first right off the bat, just the, the, the faith in my faith as a Christian and the faith in the story and the faith in, in, in the words that resonate most deeply with our hearts that allows us to, you know, step into every single day, uh, again, comes from our faith. And what's interesting for me, I'll begin with one of my teachers of mindfulness who's, uh, George Mumford, who was the, uh, he's the mindfulness guy who brought it to the Chicago Bulls when Jordan was there and brought it to the Lakers with Kobe and uh, has worked with all kinds of, he has a lot of rings as a result of (laughs) (laughs) coaching some people through to get their rings. And he starts off, he has a book called The Mindful Athlete, but he says you can you can make that the mindful coach, you can make it the mindful chef, the mindful teacher. Just just change that word because it's all about application. But his book begins with faith, and and it's you have to have faith to keep going. And and he was speaking on the macro level of the notion of faith. I got to have faith that I can make it to lunch. I got to have faith that I can make it another two hours. I got to ma- have faith that I will fall asleep tonight and feel good tomorrow. So there's that basic concept of beginning with the idea of having faith in something. Mm-hmm. And then when you can have faith in your religion, there is an empowerment that occurs that allows you to do things that you know you cannot do on your own. And so part of having faith is letting go. Yeah. And so when you get thrown into a cancer diagnosis or I'm sure a number of other health things or life situations, you lose control. Like it's not up to me in the sense of what my body does on any given day. I'm doing the right things to try to maximize my body's capabilities any given day. But sometimes my body might decide tomorrow is not going to be a good one. It's not, that's not my decision. Right. And so the inconsistency of every day could cause you to lose faith in your days, but not if you have this larger faith that, that goes beyond time, that goes beyond individuality. And it in and for me, you know, again, as a as a mindfulness teacher, a big part of this comes from uh what what I've always and, and I think of the name of your book, Breathe, right? Um a big part of mindfulness is the breath and it's this ability when stuff is going crazy to slow down and take a very intentional deep breath followed by a long exhale where you release the tension in your body wherever it is your shoulders your jaw. i lock my jaw so i take a breath and exhale relax my jaw so that's like the nuts and bolts but for me every single breath is a representation of my faith because the spirit comes from the Latin word spiritus, which means breath. Just like the Hebrew word ruah right. means breath and spirit. Exactly. 
the Hawaiian word ha means breath and spirit. Like all of a sudden, what's going on here? Why do we keep getting breath and spirit thrown in the same semantic word? And so whether it's ruha or spiritus, I, I believe with each breath I take in, it is the divine breath. I am taking the divine spirit, spiritus. I'm breathing in my faith. And so I'm filling my body with what is the spirit. And I'm exhaling and releasing all the tension out of my body on the other side of that. And so knowing that spiritus, ruah, the breath, and the spirit somehow are all connected, when things get at their hardest, my focusing on my breath is a silent interaction with God. And it's even in the, in the nature of God. I mean, not only is ruah, you know, spirit, mm -hmm. breath, but you think about in the creation story, God breathed life. Yes. And you think, this is God breathing. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing in breathing and learning to breathe well, mm -hmm. which, you know, I write about it, but learning to breathe again, mm -hmm. those are very much in sync with the very nature of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there is, I think, an immense compatibility with what is often in mindfulness thought about as a primarily as a technique mm -hmm. or even thought about as originating in other places. Mm -hmm. But it kind of doesn't matter because when it gets down to it, it is the very nature of God mm -hmm. that we're living into, breathing exactly. into. Breathing into God. And, and that's where you even go. Is it Paul's letter to the Galatians, I think, where he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Yes. Again, fruits of the Spirit which is both the spirit and the breath. What are the fruits of the spirit and what are the fruits of the breath? And, you know, it's love, kindness, goodness. Go through the list of the beautiful, right. that, that beautiful uh, phrase. And, and you start recognizing that the, the fruits of paying attention to our breath in a manner that recognizes, and we can get into the science side of it, to where if I have a shortness of breath, I'm functioning from the wrong symptomatic nervous system, which is now gonna cause me to function from the back of my brain rather than the front of the brain. The front of the brain is where I learn everything, whether it's a chemistry test or a golf swing. So if I'm not breathing correctly, I'll start functioning from the wrong part of the brain because my brain thinks I'm in fight or flight. Right. So there's this purely biological basis that you're just like, wow, wrong breathing leads to wrong action. Right. And right breathing leads to the fruit of the spirit. But the the science is nothing but confirmation mm -hmm. of the truth. Yes. Not vice yes. versa. Not vice versa. Exactly. Not very, so, you know, I, I just think that's uh, so good. So so a couple other things. I, I um, And you, you've touched on this, but I think it's really hard to imagine and wonder, you know, when when you hear the immensity of what you've been through and are going through, to wonder how do you how do you survive? Mm -hmm. How do you manage the stress and the fear mm -hmm. and the anxiety mm -hmm. 
that have to be present Mm -hmm. in the midst of it. You know, it's not like you're just able to walk free from that. How do you, how do you feel like you handle that on a day by day basis? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it's, uh, to me, I, I think of what, it's like a mixture of everything we've been talking about in the sense that, okay, fear, anxiety, stress, whatever triggered them in any given day. The first thing is to feel it. Our normal reaction is, nope, pushing that away. I can't, I I already have cancer. I can't deal with fear, right? Well, if I push fear away, it's going to come back a hundredfold, right? It doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's this notion that what we resist persists, right? So if, and it doesn't mean you take fear and then go, go like run around with it. Just sit with it, sit with fear and see if we can take fear is rooted in the language that is occurring in my head. The voice that's talking, my internal dialogue is creating a fear inside. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Internal fear arises that causes a physiological reaction in my body. Maybe my jaw locks or my shoulders tense. My heart rate goes up. I breathe a little more shallow. So I notice what fear feels like. And then I come back to the breath and I slow down the physical processes that are going on while letting go of the language that got me there. So instead of ruminating on the thing that I'm afraid of, I acknowledge it. I tag it. This is what I'm thinking. Now, what am I feeling physically? Breathe, release the physical tension. Now reimmerse myself into this moment, but let go of fear so it doesn't interrupt the next moment. And the only way there goes back to what the other question was, faith. Right. You can't do that process without faith on the other side of it. It's going to be okay. And that's that's something that I can say that I'm so grateful. One of the first things in so many contexts this is relevant and talking to grateful for David Dwight's guidance from the get-go on a very difficult situation for me, for my family. But one of the things he said early on that I have never forgot, and it's a very simple acknowledgement of this will be very hard, but it will be okay. So you're acknowledging hard exists, and most people just stay there. Yeah, hard exists, so, you know, I give up. No, hard exists, and it will be okay. Right. It, 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 again, it's that notion of two sides of the same coin, right? We, we, we experience the hard, but we have faith in the okay. And the way we get there, for me, it's the breath. It's releasing the tension in the body. It's tapping back into, I, I have a stack of books next to my bed and different devotionals and all kinds of things that I may say, today I need to read this and see where that takes me. But it starts with whatever negative emotion presents itself as a result of having cancer, not to run from it because it'll catch me. So I need, like, how can I treat my cancer if I allow fear to constantly swirl in my body? It doesn't mean never be fearful. It means feel it when it's present and let it go so that the next moment isn't interrupted by it. Well, that's so good because I, I think, again, people think of all of this as techniques or you could even say gimmicks and really Mm -hmm. what it is is it's creating the soil Mm -hmm. i like to say Mm -hmm. or the the Mm -hmm. space where faith can rise to the surface yes and you know sometimes we need to create that space for the faith Mm -hmm. to rise otherwise fear overwhelms it and you're simply allowing breath Mm -hmm. to create that space that allows you to uh, confess mm-hmm. 
to acknowledge that it can both be hard and yes. okay. Yes. And that, that, that is like that statement right there is just faith in a nutshell for yeah. you to have that dichotomy and be okay with it. And it is, um, it is sometimes situations are so difficult for people that they, and this hasn't been us, but if faith isn't their thing, yeah, hitting them with faith first will cause oh. a wall. So if you can, if we can guide people to their better selves so that they can have faith in the next moment, then they can open themselves up to a much greater faith that allowed that moment to arrive. So it's just what you said, creating the soil that allows faith to grow from it. Right. And then and it, that just reciprocates itself. And it's just so hard to do it when the storm's already upon you. And that's the same thing with mindfulness. It, it's funny because it's people are like often are trying to ask for mindful help in the greatest calamities of their life. And and absolutely there are ways that it can help, but it's a practice. So it's like if if you play a sport, you practice a whole bunch of times before you step into that competition. So whether it's practicing your faith, practicing mindfulness, or practicing both, when things get hard, if we're able to practice within that moment and give ourselves the grace of imperfection while practicing, the 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 strength, I think of like the calluses on our fingers when we play guitar, like we we can finally play a little better because we've gone through that faithfully. Right. Mm. That's that's great. Well, I want to kind of um, ask a really challenging mm. question, kind of to to close a little bit of our time together. And uh, gosh, I feel like we've just scratched the surface mm. of so much stuff. But um, this experience that you're going through, and now, I mean, it's been a long, long journey. Um, it's so easy to hear how it's affected your perspective on everything mm-hmm. um, in some really extraordinarily positive ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on now having come to the place that you are, how would you now look at life and say, you know, this is what it means to live life well? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, it's it's a great question because when you have a terminal diagnosis laid out in front of you, you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself that question in reference to that day. How are right. we going to live today well? And and so it's 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 one of those things where again i wish people don't wait for a terminal diagnosis to ask themselves how will i live today well every time they wake up and and it's again i want to emphasize over and over this is not about perfection none of it yeah. that's why i keep saying practice 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 and so how do you live well you practice living well that means grace in the areas of mistakes and compassion in areas where that's needed, but it's it's ultimately, are you present for your life? And I know it's such a cliched statement, but we think of you know if I if, if 
me driving from my house to your house, do I remember everything in between? It's the age old question, right? We get in our car and we kind of just go on mental autopilot. And, and that's an example of, yeah, we can get some stuff done in the car or mentally checklist or listen to music, but it's an example of how we can go from point A to point B and not remember how we got there technically on the detail side, like every detail of the ride. During the course of our day, we don't need to memorize or focus in on every single detail, but have the radar up and open. And when I say radar, I mean your heart. Have your, because they're actually, your heart is wrapped in neurons the same way that uh, our brain is. Like we have neurons wrapped around our heart, we have neurons wrapped around our stomach that, that communicate up to the brain, just like the brain communicating down. And so when you've ever had a heartfelt experience, it's not just a saying, it's an actual heartfelt experience that comes from the neurons that exist in your heart that's communicating to the rest of your body. What's interesting about both the stomach and those heartfelt feelings, sometimes they travel to a portion of the brain that has no language. So all of a sudden you have a feeling you can't describe. Maybe that's a beautiful sunset. Maybe it's an incredible moment with a family member. Maybe it's a spiritual experience you can't put words to. I believe those are felt in the heart because, again, those neurons are connected to a part of the brain that gives us an intuitive sense, but not necessarily an explanation. And so I would say with that, slow down and listen to your heart. And that doesn't mean follow your every desire, it's right. not that type of heart. Oh, my heart wants more ice cream tonight. That's yeah. have some, sure. It's, it's not your emotions. Yeah. I mean, that might be a piece of it. It's but. a piece. It's an acknowledgement and awareness of the presence of emotions, but it's more of what resonates deeply with you and slowing down with family, with friends, with, you know, it, it, I, we can certainly get into the technology conversation side of this of, of you know, put down the phone and... right just sit with the person across from you. And, and I think a life well lived is one that is done with intentionality. And that's not meaning everything is perfect, but I can say when we don't know what the outcome is going to be, I don't know what the outcome is going to be for me. And let's say, simplify it to I'm trying to make a decision between, you know, if a, a younger person's making a decision between two jobs, I got this job offer and that job, which one do I take? We don't know what the outcome is going to be. We can try to crystal ball it and guess. But I believe if we step back and we ask ourselves, what are my intentions and what are my motivations for either of these two and make our decisions based on intentions, not on outcomes. That way, if the outcome is not what is not positive, you can look back and say, my intentions were good. I didn't fail here. I learned here because I entered with good intentions. The thing didn't go as I planned, but I at least came from my heart, from my right mindedness. I didn't try to guess at some future based outcome that may or may not happen. I'm making decisions based on this moment, but I'm also making them based on, um, again, that, that, place where love makes the decisions for you right and that's where compassion enters and that's where the next time a person at a stoplight doesn't immediately go on green don't lay on your horn yeah what if that person was in a catastrophic car accident and they're terrified to be on the road that day mm. ask yourself think think of how i can 
help this person not worsen their day. And, and there's so many people, sorry, I tear up, mm. so many people in this world who suffer. And it's that old saying, you know, you don't know what everybody's story is. So a life fully lived is one in which you slow down and you may not know what to do for everybody, but at a minimum, don't harm, do no harm. And at a maximum, find a way to give each person across from you the opportunity to be their best self. So if we can do no harm to the strangers that may be a little slow at the stoplight or whatever it may be, and if we can lift up the people that are sitting across from us, and I and that can only be done in an authentic knowing manner, not just a guessing game. But if we can be more compassionate to those we don't know, and if we can bring the best out of those we do know, I think we're in the heading in the right direction for a world that really needs it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Such good words. Thank you for being with us, for sharing your, your heart, your journey, your honesty, your struggle, your faith. Uh, uh, Speechless. Thank you so much, everybody for joining us. Um, Share this with others. A lot of people need to hear hear this story. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope that you found it helpful and encouraging in your journey. Before you leave, I wanted to let you know of two things. First, if you are looking for more helpful content like this, visit TommyThompson.org. There you will find resources created to help you find space in your life. Second, if you are enjoying this podcast, I would love it if you would take a minute to leave a review. This helps other people find the show as well. 